Hello, I'm Paulette Lee, and you're listening to Woman Worthy, real talk about real issues for women over 60. If you're over 60, you're still worthy of being heard. I did an earlier episode on scams with the emphasis being on who does them and why and who gets caught by them and why, including myself. This episode, though, is in observance of National Consumer Protection Week. Who knew, right? Well, it turns out that since 1998, uh, the first week of March, has been designated as National Consumer Protection Week. And among several public agencies that offer tips on being an aware consumer, the Federal Trade Commission, which we call the FTC, with its Bureau of Consumer Affairs, takes the lead, pointing out, and I quote from their website, Over the years, with transactions over the digital medium increasing, the role of FTC and National Consumer Protection Week has become more critical. During National Consumer Protection Week, consumers are provided with valuable yet free tools and information on the business, identity theft, cybersecurity, and online transaction protection to help safeguard themselves against rising instances of cyber fraud and online scams. And these are my words now. The bottom line is they're out to get your money. Continuing to quote from the FTC website, As consumers, we are always best served with a level playing field where we can make objective and correct decisions regarding purchase and investments. However, we cannot be sure that the entity we are dealing with has our best interest in mind. It then becomes essential that we take advantage of initiatives such as National Consumer Protection Week to safeguard our money and well-being, end quote. A few months ago, while traveling abroad, I found that my U.S. checking account and then in turn my savings and PayPal accounts had all been hacked to the tune of $1,900. Because I was out of the country, I couldn't personally go into the bank and file a claim, which was required. So it was a very frustrating and, uh, in fact, scary time for me. When I returned home, I was visiting the bank almost daily for a week, providing records as best I could about what money had gone where and establishing new accounts. Most of the money was returned to me, but not all, due to some, well, bad record-keeping on my part, too detailed to go into here, but the bottom line is is that nobody could account for where those few other hundred dollars had gone. But the point is, my accounts were hacked. And the phenomenon has become so pervasive that my bankers said they could barely keep up with normal business activities, having to spend so much time researching hacked accounts. Of my case, the banker said, it was a very sophisticated job. So, of particular interest to me, and perhaps to you, is what the FTC has to say about identity theft. I will start with a no-no of which I'm guilty. Don't repeat your passwords. But, the FTC website cautions, Hackers use different tactics to steal or guess your passwords, and they use phishing attacks 
to trick you into giving up your login credentials. And did you know, my aside, which I did not, that scammers buy credentials stolen in data breaches using your username and your password to log into the account where the breach happened. And, this is still the FTC, they might try to use the username and password to log into another one of your accounts, which is a reason not to reuse them. But really, I mean, the maintenance issue of keeping track of all those new passwords, and what about usernames that are your email address? According to the FTC, the best way to protect your accounts is to use two-factor authentication sometimes called two-step verification or multi-factor authentication. The second step nowadays typically is receiving a one-time verification passcode uh, that you get by text, email, or from an authenticator app or security key. I will talk about those two latter items a little bit later. There's even a higher security verification method, which is your fingerprint, face, or retina. So let me address the first two, text and email. I always ask for email second step verification because if I'm traveling outside the country, my phone may not be able to receive text messages or if I'm using a foreign SIM card in my unlocked cell phone, the entity doing the authorizing may not be able to dial a foreign number. If I'm online, that is, have internet access, then I can receive email. Many countries are farther ahead of this than the U.S. For example, in France, everything was two-step. Fortunately, I had a French phone number. But in other countries, I may only be using WhatsApp for messaging, which works on my U.S. cell number but I'm not making calls on that phone because then I would be roaming, which is prohibitively expensive, and the credit card company or whoever is trying to send me a code by text is not able to text to my, uh, to that, that number. Uh, so it's the single option, one-time passcode via text message that can be a problem. The FTC says it also has its drawbacks. Hackers can take over your phone number through a SIM card swap attack and get text messages sent to your number, including those with a verification code, before you realize someone stole your number. If you get a verification passcode by email, use a strong password and two-factor authentication on your email account. That will make it harder for someone to hack into your email and steal your one-time passcode. But, this is the FTC says, it's safer to use an authenticator app or security key if they're an option. This is something I want to investigate. I started to investigate it for this podcast. There's a but there. But let me first say that there are several authenticator apps, including Google, Microsoft, Duo, and Authy, A-U-T-H-Y, which a New York Times article recommends. But that looked very challenging to use. So I took a look at Google. (laughs) 
the Google Authenticator app, I, I also couldn't figure it out, even though I read reviews that said it was very easy. Um, the point is, is that the Authenticator app keeps changing the verification passcode, and thus it is not susceptible, at least it's not supposed to be, to a SIM card swap attack or hacker. The FTC also recommends checking to see if your Authenticator app offers, quote, the option of sending you notification on your phone or tablet every time someone tries to log into your account. The notification might give you some details about the login attempt, like the account someone is trying to log into, their physical location, the type of device they're using, and the date and time of the login attempt. You can approve or deny the request with a tap, meaning a tap on the screen, end quote from the FTC. Well, being pretty much behind the technological times, I also was not aware of the physical security key, it's an actual key, that uses encryption to confirm account identity. According to the FTC, security keys are the strongest method of two-factor authentication because they don't use credentials that hackers can steal. Knowing myself, though, I would probably lose the key. Truthfully, the few and admittedly quick attempts I've made to pursue this indicate I might not ever be able to figure this all out, unless, of course, I get in touch with a 12-year-old someplace. But I was able to follow through on at least one recommendation. I went to my laptop account settings, then security, and turned on two-step verification using my cell phone number. Okay, I don't know if this will actually do anything, or if it duplicates something, or for what it is useful. <laughs> But I'm going to take the FTC's general advice. Go to the sites you frequent, like your bank, credit cards, email, social media, tax filing, and payment apps, and set up two-factor authentication on them. Remember, only have the account remember your own devices. Don't have it remember the device if you're logging in from a public computer like at a library. I think we probably already all know this, but it's good to be reminded. Now, we have all heard of seniors' susceptibility to scams and abuse, but there's one particular category that is money-related and is indeed called elder financial exploitation. Now, since my podcast is directed toward women over 60 who are living vibrant lives, because we're not yet, if ever, in a state of cognitive decline, it does not mean that we're immune from elder financial exploitation, which is defined as, quote, illegal or improper use of an older adult's money, property, or other resources for monetary or personal benefit profit or gain. This includes, but is not limited to, theft, misappropriation, concealment, scams, fraud, or predatory lending, unquote. And most elder financial exploitation is conducted 
by family or close friends or associates. So you do not have to be declared incompetent or have somebody else completely managing your finances in order to be susceptible to elder financial exploitation. You just have to be over 60 <laughs> and watch, watch out and be careful. So it's not just mental or physical decline that jeopardize us. It can also be accumulated wealth in savings accounts, fixed incomes, or social security benefits. The key to spotting financial exploitation is a change in a person's established financial patterns. So, if you're that person that we're talking about, if anyone in your circle has access to your accounts, these are some warning signs that financial exploitation is underway. There's unusual activity on your bank accounts, including large, frequent, or unexplained withdrawals and or transfers, ATM withdrawals that you don't recognize, notices of insufficient funds or unpaid bills, suspicious signatures on checks or, or outright forgeries, or altered wills and trusts. And as much as we don't want to believe it, our adult, adult children, our adult grandchildren, our close associates, our relatives could possibly be taking advantage or trying to take advantage of our financial situation. So you may have to give up some autonomy. And if you don't want to allow someone access to your financial records, at least have someone with whom you can discuss your finances. Allowing someone else to review your decisions and intervene could not only reduce your risk, but also give you ideas on maybe how to handle things differently. I live in Maryland, where state law requires health practitioners, police officers, and human service workers to report suspected abuse to the local Department of Social Services. Your state may have a similar law, and you can find out by contacting your state government representative's office and ask them to research for you what the law is on this topic. If you're concerned about an older adult or an older adult with disabilities being financially exploited, you can contact your county's Adult Protective Services, your state attorney general's office, or of course, a private attorney. And you can always call the National Elder Fraud Hotline at 1-833-372-8311. And of course, I will put that phone number as well as other resources on the Woman Worthy Facebook page. Now, one more consumer issue that I'd like to discuss in this podcast. When it comes to those annoying robocalls, the FTC advises, quote, if you answer the phone and hear a recorded message instead of a live person, it's a robocall. A robocall trying to sell you something is illegal unless the company trying to sell you something 
got written permission directly from you to call you that way. To get your permission, the company has to be clear it's asking you to call you with robocalls, and it can't make you agree to the calls to get a product or service. If you give your permission, you have the right to change your mind later. If you're getting a lot of robocalls trying to sell you something, odds are the calls are illegal and they're often scams, end quote from the FTC. Today, it's easy for those calls to come from anywhere in the world using the internet to find you and to make the calls. Don't rely on your caller ID, by the way. Scammers can fake the name and number that shows up, making it look like a call is from a government agency like the IRS or a local number. That's called spoofing. Now, there are robocalls that are allowed without your permission under FTC rules, and they include messages that are purely informational, robocalls about your flight being canceled, reminding you about an appointment, or letting you know about a delayed school opening fall into this category, as long as the caller is not trying to sell you something. Debt collection calls, a business contacting you to collect a debt can use robocalls to reach you, but robocalls that try to sell you services to lower your debt are illegal and are almost certainly scams. Political calls are allowed. Calls from some health providers. This includes a robocall from a pharmacy reminding you to refill a prescription. Messages from charities. Charities can make these calls to you themselves, but if a charity hires someone to make robocalls on its behalf, unless you are a prior donor or member of the charity, the robocall is illegal. They, all must, they uh, also must include an automated option to let you stop future calls. I have to laugh because when you add up all the uh, legal robocalls there are, it pretty much adds up to all the robocalls that I receive, which end up being a lot. Uh, well, you can get fewer robocalls through various call blocking and call labeling solutions available based on whether you're getting calls on a cell phone, traditional landline, or home phone that makes calls over the internet called a uh, VOIP. If you get a robocall, hang up. <clears throat> Don't press any numbers. Report the call to the FTC at donotcall.gov. Report the number that received the call, the number on your caller ID, and any number you're told to call back. <clears throat> also report the exact date and time of the call if you know it. Knowing all this information helps the FTC track down the scammers behind the call. Even if you think the number on your caller ID is fake, report it. The FTC analyzes report data and uh, analyzes report data and trends to identify illegal callers based on calling patterns. The FTC takes the illegal caller's phone numbers you report and releases them to the public every business day. That I didn't know. This helps phone companies and other partners that are working on call blocking and call labeling solutions. Your reports also help law enforcement identify the people behind the illegal calls. 
And what about the National Do Not Call Registry? Does it stop robocalls? Actually, no. The registry is designed to stop sales calls from real companies that follow the law. The registry is a list that tells telemarketers what numbers not to call. The FTC does not and cannot block calls. Scammers don't care if you're on the registry, but being on the registry could reduce the number of calls you get. There is just one step to take if you receive a call from an unknown number, hang up immediately. And of course, a lot of us using our cell phones, if we don't recognize the, uh, the phone number, we just don't answer it. If you answer and you're asked to respond by hitting a number to stop getting the calls, hang up. This is a way for spammers to identify potential targets if you hit a number. Don't respond to anything that asks for you to provide a verbal answer. Your yes can be recorded and be used later illegitimately. Now, I don't know if they're called robo-emails, but I certainly get a lot of them. Uh, for example, I keep getting spam, spam telling me that I'm eligible to collect on a Camp Lejeune lawsuit. In addition to marking it as spam constantly with no apparent effect, I have to confess I made the situation worse by clicking on unsubscribe. Don't you do that. <laughs> I know, this is a lot and it can be overwhelming. Modern society can be incredibly complex. But then, I don't know, maybe my grandmother thought the same thing. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Have a great week. You have been listening to Woman Worthy, real talk about real issues for women over 60. Tune in wherever you receive your podcasts with new episodes every Monday morning. You can leave your comments by downloading the Podbean app to your device and on the Woman Worthy Facebook page. I'm Paulette Lee. I hope you found this program worthy of your time.